Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime. And I'm so tired from CrimeCon, I forgot to put on my glasses, which I need to see. So there we go. Um, what a time it was at CrimeCon, Susan. Uh, Bob and I are absolutely exhausted. Rick was smart enough to not attend. <laughs> Joking. It was a, a phenomenal time, and hopefully Rick will be there uh, in May when it is in Nashville. But, uh, of course, uh, it is a plot twist now in one of the most disturbing murder cases in recent history. Attorneys for a man accused of killing two teenage girls six years ago in Delphi, Indiana, have filed a lengthy and at times bizarre motion for a hearing that claims the girls were killed by cult members and double murder suspect Richard Allen has no ties to those religious groups. Uh, of course, we're talking about the two victims, Abigail Abby Williams, 13, and Liberty Libby German, 14. They are the young victims. We're going to focus on them and talk about all this. Our first time, we've got two new best guests. Cannot wait to introduce them. Uh, first one up. Veteran CNN and HLN journalist Susan Hendricks, she anchored the network's live news program Weekend Express from 2016 to December 2022. Among her many assignments at HLN, uh, Susan anchored extensive coverage on the Delphi double murder investigation, including the special report, Delphi Murders, Teen, girl, teen Girls Killer in Custody, along with retired veteran cold case investigator Paul Holes. Mm -hmm. um, Susan also anchored the Gabby Petito investigation, Where is the Fugitive Fiance? And she recently sat down for an interview with the, uh, the Petitos about their struggles. Uh, and of course, she is uh, the author of uh, Down the Road, uh, Down the Hill, I should say. And Susan, most perhaps most importantly, I I just found out is from New Brunswick, New Jersey, yeah. a stone's throw from where I grew up in Highland Park, New Jersey. So uh, I feel that commonality. Uh, we welcome back one of the preeminent thought leaders on cults. Cults. I am tired. You can tell. Rick <laughs> Ross is a cult intervention spe specialist and frequently a, a court expert witness concerning groups called cults. He is the founder and executive director of the Cult Education Institute and the author of Cults Inside Out. And certainly, last but not least, I met him this weekend at CrimeCon, Bob Mata II. He is a partner with the Chicago Criminal Defense and Kane County Family Law Firm of Mata and Mata LLC. He concentrates his practice in family law, divorce, and criminal defense with a focus in felony drug cases, DUI, and weapons charges. But most importantly for this, you guys all know him as the host of the popular defense diaries podcast just a quick note we are turning out more content than you can keep up with uh the coe actually has a best of crime con coming out tomorrow afternoon so that is going to be exciting keep an eye out uh for that we could certainly use some uh, support on either patreon or youtube if you're unable to help there please give us five stars on uh apple Podcasts. that goes a long way as well the merch store is open survivingthesurvivor.com. A lot of you uh, haven't been pushing that at all, but we've had our website up the entire time and it's got all of our uh, past episodes. So please check it out. And uh, without further ado, uh, check out, we put together what they, Susan and I know to be uh, 
all-day news package on the story, a quick recap of uh, what happened, and I believe this is it. I'm going to roll it because the COE disappeared on me. Here we go. On STS, victims are most important, so we begin with them. Liberty German, 14, Abigail Williams, 13. Abby and Libby were best friends in eighth grade when they went for a walk and disappeared from a popular trail in Delphi, Indiana, back on February 13, 2017. Sadly, they were found dead in the woods the next day, Valentine's Day, 2017. It took nearly five years before police arrested the man they say committed the horrific double murder. He's Richard Allen, a 50-year-old who lived in Delphi, is a father himself, and worked at CVS. He was charged with two counts of murder, entering a not guilty plea. When interviewed by police back in 2017, Allen said he was on the trail on the afternoon of the murders. Police found critical evidence on Abby's phone, which had a 43-second video showing her walking toward Libby while a man wearing a dark jacket and jeans walks behind her. The man can be heard ordering the girls down the hill, according to an affidavit. Delphi murder suspect Richard Allen eventually confessed to killing the two girls at the center of the double homicide case. He did that in recorded jailhouse calls. Police located a 40 caliber unspent bullet at the crime scene, the same caliber gun found at Richard Allen's home when a search warrant was executed. Authorities believe a knife was used in the crime, but now Richard Allen's defense team claims they have the wrong man and the girls were actually sacrificed as part of a ritual cult killing. And uh, we got the best cult expert in the world, Rick Allen Ross, to discuss that. But first, uh, Susan, to you, I mean, you wrote a book. You're literally the author uh, on this case. Um, how did you get so involved? And tell us a little bit about the book before we get cracking. And uh, the COE has got your book cover, so she's going to get it up there. In a month. There it is. Look at that. Well, as you know, Coming from Fox News, myself, CNN, HLN, it was an assignment to me in the beginning. And it's not often that they send us away in a story like that, meaning to a certain location. But they said, Susan, we're sending you um, to Delphi. Remember that story um, where the young girl captured his voice on her cell phone, the Snapchat murders, what we called it from the start. And I said, oh, yes, I remember going down there. It just changed everything my perspective on the story, meeting the families, being invited in, and I'm literally eating spaghetti with the family, with two photojournalists, a producer, um, and them talking to us about, about Libby and what she was like and meeting Kelsey and just seeing a, a video of Libby and her laughing in the same kitchen. They really invited us in and were so welcoming. And at that time, of course, this was 2019, they were still looking for the person that did this. And their family, a little different from Abby's, they seemed to to be more um, subdued, if you will, in terms of the media that they wanted to do. I did interview Abby's family at, at a crime con, and and I was at Abby's home. Um, they welcomed me in, looked at photo albums, telling me about Abby, but not the same as Libby's family. And they both understood that they were both very different in all of this, but they came together on wanting to find the person that did this. And they, of course, were diligent, handing out flyers. Remember the first sketch came out? They handed that flyer out for years until April 22nd when the other sketch was revealed at that now infamous press conference. I was there where Superintendent Doug Carter said, um, we believe you're from Delphi or once lived here. We believe you could be in this room. I'm literally sitting down feet 
from Doug Carter thinking, in this room, is he in this room looking around? And what was most shocking was what they revealed, which was a sketch that looked so different from the first one. Very young, about 18 to me. I mean, a kid, it looked like, from the sketch. And then there was confusion after that for the families thinking, wait a minute, for so many years, do we just disregard that? And uh, the superintendent said, look, this was from information over time that we have switched direction. Now we need you to hand out this flyer. Both families coming together decided, okay, here we go again, and handing out that flyer, but confused on who they should be looking for. Um, Bob, to you. So uh, it was last Monday that the defense drops this 136-page motion, basically um, rewriting the complete narrative to this story, uh, suggesting that a cult – is responsible for it. And then uh, on Monday, uh, just yesterday, the state responds. Is this uh, gamesmanship here between uh, the defense and the state, or is there more at play? We'll get a kind of a broad perspective, and then we'll uh, home in on some of the details of all this. It's both, Joel. It's certainly gamesmanship. Uh, the defense certainly took the opportunity to get their narrative of what I anticipate will be their defense at trial. Uh, But it's, you know, the heart of the motion is really for a Frank's hearing, which is essentially for lay people that might not know what that is. It's essentially where the defense is attacking a warrant. In this case, it happens to be the warrant for the search of Richard Allen's home. And they are saying, look, law enforcement, in order to get that warrant and their affidavit, which was attached to the complaint for the warrant, which they then stood in front of the judge and said, "Okay, this is our probable cause that they lied in certain aspects in order to get the warrant. So that that is buried in there. There's about 115 pages of their theory in terms of the Odinism, in terms of how Richard Allen couldn't have done it alone. And buried deep, I think it's around page 105, they get to the, the crux of what the motion really is, which is saying, look, we need to suppress all the evidence that was collected during the search of Richard Allen's home because... Tony Liggett, the detective that was working and conducted the search or and or went in and was the affiant on the affidavit, lied in terms of the probable cause in order to get the warrant. So it's both. You, you know, I mean, typically what you see in a criminal case is when the prosecution drops those PCAs, which we seem to be in the golden era of PCAs because between the Delphi probable cause affidavit as well as the Idaho 4 probable mm-hmm. cause affidavit, the world kind of exploded in terms of lay people looking at these things and doing what I've been doing for 20 plus years, which is reading these and trying to vet them in order to try to prepare my case because it's the first thing you get. And it's also the first thing the public hears. So the state has that advantage of being able to get their theory of the case out to the public. Typically it goes where it's not answered by the defense. The defense typically is not able to get out this type of information. So in a case like this, where most major trials, they take two to three years time to get to actual trial. So that sits there and percolates with the public, you know, and it's always been my position with respect to defense attorneys. It's a major advantage for the prosecution because their theory, and that's what it is. Let's be clear. Prosecutors weren't there. Cops weren't there. Neither were the attorneys. So, you know, when these theories come out, that's all it is. So to have that out, in front of anybody else and to have that be the only thing out is a, is an advantage to them. So in this case, it's been very unusual. First, the defense basically had written a letter that was published 
Uh, and that was when Judge Gull actually sealed the case and she gagged them because mm-hmm. they had gotten their side of the story out, which is unusual. And that really caused her to say, okay, I'm shutting you guys down. You're done with the press. So then what they did with this thing, and, and, and Joel, I've been doing this for a long time, man. I've never seen anything like that. It read like a novel. It was, it was insane. <laughs> but, you know, deep, deep in it, and I know we're going to get into it, there's a lot there that we need to dig into. Yep. And uh, for those who have been living under a rock, uh, Bob Mata is host of the very popular Defense Diaries podcast. Happy he's joining us. Of course, Susan Hendricks wrote the book on this case, literally uh, down the hill. And uh, no one knows cults better than Rick Allen Ross. I have to admit, Rick, um, never heard of Odinism uh, until today. What what or until I researched this the other day, what is Odinism? How long has it been around? Uh, Who's who are members of this? Well, you know, this is a pretty preposterous narrative that they've concocted, in my opinion. There's nothing really there that's uh, substantial. But Odinism is a kind of, uh, you know, restoration of Norse mythology uh, that has been embraced by white supremacist groups. The idea that they do ritual sacrifices to Odin and that the white supremacists are involved in that in Indiana, I think is ridiculous. And this basically harkens back to the 1980s during what was called the satanic panic, when a number of people came forward and said, look, there are all these Satanist groups. Uh, They actually uh, sacrifice infants, children, and uh, they're, you know, we need to be aware of that. There were many talk shows devoted to that. None, by the way, which included me, uh, because I refused to buy into it. I, I, I could never see where there was any physical objective evidence to substantiate any of these claims. And ultimately, police and, uh, and various authorities would prove that this was all just anecdotal, that there was nothing there, and that uh, many people uh, suffered as a direct result of false prosecution in that regard. So I'm looking at this Odinism claim as very similar. Uh, I don't see anything that really supports it. I would be looking for some some type of historical uh, documentation about this cult group. Uh, who is their leader? Where did they? Where where are they active? Who are the members by name? Uh, where do they meet? Mm-hmm. What address do they have for their organization? Do they have a mail drop? Uh, I'm not seeing anything in this narrative to substantiate these wild claims. And uh, no one knows more about cults again than Rick Allen Ross. I'm going to obviously circle back to him with some follow-up questions. By the way, the absolute best part of CrimeCon besides meeting Bob Mata and I didn't meet Susan Hendricks, sadly, <laughs> was uh, meeting all of STS Nation, the members that were there. Laura Waldy, uh, STS may be better than crack for us, but man, when Joel's not on live, I think I know what a drug withdrawal feels like, as I would say, <laughs> better than crack cocaine, be addicted to STS. Tali in Israel watching us live all the time. Look at that new picture, kissing your pup. You got to send me a picture of that dog. Uh, Joel, happy you're back from CarmCon. I love that. We're going to make CarmCon shirts for the next one. Excited for this. Hey, guys, so glad to meet you and Bob at CrimeCon. What a great event. Powerful. Great to meet you as well, AJ. Uh, Really awesome. And uh, believe it or not, the COE already booked rooms 
for Nashville, if you can believe that. So we are heading back uh, for Nashville at the end of May. I was just finishing up the Surviving My Biggest Case from earlier. If you have not seen the most recent one, it is Jim Van Allen talking about profiling a killer in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. It is definitely worth a watch. It's awesome. And shout out to Dr. Shila. We need to get her back on. LA, not so confidential. I met your producer uh, in LA or in at CrimeCon. I am so tired uh but the guy was great uh walking around in a basically a santa claus outfit um coe if we got a picture of carm signing autographs that was a highlight of my life um i spoke to my mom today i said how do you like it and she you know what she said to me hmm. joel i never think about the past i only move forward she already moved on it's over and done with until the next crime con she will not give me an inch of uh, anything. She has moved on from it. So, uh, Susan, back to you, this 43-second video. Um, mm -hmm. It shows Abby, as we know by now, walking on this high bridge toward Libby uh, while uh, a man wearing a dark jacket and jeans walks behind her. Uh, the man can be heard ordering the girls down the hill. That is the title of your book. Um, this is really the crux of the case. And you talk about that initial sketch where, um, you know, the suspect looked much younger what do you think about this defense motion do you think that they're just trying to muddy the waters and create that quote-unquote reasonable doubt speaking to what bob mentioned earlier about the general public knowing probable cause affidavits right we all know it. we can see it now and reading through it i think the defense knew exactly what would happen that the media would talk about it podcasts would talk about it everyone would talk about their theories and it makes you wonder did they think about a way to get around the gag order? I think yes, I do. I wonder what Fran Gull will say in response to it. To me, it was ridiculous. It was um, maybe facts of the crime scene sprinkled in to this 136-page just made-up theory, just made-up theory. And what do you have to prove? And I think about all the trials that I've covered at HLN and sticking out the most, and I said this on Court TV at CrimeCon, is the Casey Anthony trial. And do you remember a defense attorney coming out and saying, it was the father, and this is why, and it was Kelly. It was, and what really had to be proved during the trial? So I'm wondering if this is just out there, again, jury selection, is this tainting the jury? In my opinion, yes. And so what do you have to prove on what was stated? I think it was um, just, uh, I, I can't even speak to it other than that, that I think um, it was just made up and false and, and McClelland responding saying, it's colorful, dramatic, and highly unprofessional. And I agree, we'll see what happens next. By the way, shout out to Susan's husband. Uh, she told me he designed that set behind her, and it looks pretty <laughs> awesome. So uh, she married the right guy, that's for sure. Um, Ned Smith says, Bob Mata is the master of this case in all caps. So excited he's here as we are. Um, so the prosecutors podcast and by, by the way, shout out to them. They won podcast of the year. Well deserved. And Bob was in the running for that. So he's going to win that in Nashville, no doubt. But um, the prosecutors podcast tweeted out the following, Bob. They said when the defense files a hundred and thirty. By the way, they went to Harvard and Yale. They said 135 pages, but I'm pretty sure it's 136 pages. So anytime I can correct someone that went to both Harvard and Yale, I will do that. So when the defense files, they wrote a 136-page motion that doesn't start its argument until page 105 and doesn't cite law until page 135, an eight-page response is exactly what is called for. The Delphi prosecutors responded to a horror movie script with facts and law. Do you agree with that tweet? 
Uh, actually, Brett's a dear friend of mine, and I actually beat him to the punch. You should have pulled up my Twitter account because I said about that. Thing. it was. <laughs> look, it, it was a it was a measured it was a measured response by the state, which is exactly what I would have expected. They didn't acknowledge the Odinism claim. They didn't acknowledge the hundred and fifteen plus pages of what some people consider to be fantasy. And, and they went directly to what I was saying, which is the heart of the motion, which is a Frank's hearing, wherein we're concerned with whether or not Tony Liggett lied in order to get the, the warrant. Like, that's the heart of the thing. Like, and to go with what Susan was saying, what she said with respect to, you know, there's no question that this was strategic on behalf of the defense in order to get their narrative. I fully anticipate that this is going to be their trial strategy. I do not think that they will pivot from this. I think that this thing, when it goes to trial, is going to, we're going to be hearing everything that we saw in that motion and the memo because that's where their head's at. You know, I mean, there, there's certain, and look, as far as the Odinism thing, if you strip that out and you just look at some of the things that they pulled, and, and I need everybody to, to understand that everything that they got in terms of evidence and information came directly from the state. Okay, that's what happens in discovery. They were tendered all these reports. They got things from from these cops. And now I want to mention uh, Click, who was one of the three. There was Click, Ferency, and Murphy were the three three officers that had continued to uh, investigate this angle based on what the crime scene looked at uh, looked like. And uh, Click made a statement after the defense had filed this memo, and it was essentially saying, "Look." They went too far. They, they, you know, this is not what we're saying. And essentially they said that, that no one in law enforcement believes that it was a ritualistic killing. So that was kind of a big statement to drop after the memo coming from one of the people that the, the defense is citing. So, you know, as far as is the evidence that they talked about in there, I'm interested to see it because that's not whole cloth. You know, I mean, that 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 is people that were interviewed. Those interviews came from police reports. You know, the four people that they name in there, uh, which I think that they shouldn't have done. I think that this should have been filed under seal. I think Judge Gall is going to be furious with them. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're going to pay the price for it. I think ultimately what's going to happen is that she's going to rule. Because, look, the way that a Frank's hearing works is they're going to get Liggett up on the stand. And he's either going to admit or he's going to deny that that he lied to the judge. Now, if the judge finds, okay, look, the defense put on two witnesses that said that this is not what they said to you and you changed it in terms of trying to get this warrant, then the judge will say, okay, I'm going to pull those out. Now, the question becomes, if you pull out the, the, the reckless and or intentional lies by Liggett, does the probable cause affidavit still have enough? And I'm talking about for the warrant, of the house people. I don't want people getting confused that we're talking about the probable cause affidavit for the arrest. They're two mm -hmm. entirely separate things. We're talking about the search of Richard Allen's home. That's what they're attacking. So if, if judge goal pulls those statements out and says, okay, I'm removing that probable cause. Does there still exist enough probable cause based on the fact that Allen put himself at the scene in or around the time that the girls went missing uh, you know, in, in the rest of what they had in there, minus the witness statements in terms of what the person looked like in some of the timeline issues. If she says, I think there's enough, the motion gets denied. It's that simple. So because really what, what the defense is concerned about is 
the unspent casing. Because if the search to the house goes, the gun goes, the 40 caliber weapon that matches the unspent casing that was found in between the girls at the crime scene. Okay, so that, that's a, it's a big deal. You know, they, they need that. Now, whether or not that's going to be effective at trial, I have long thoughts on an unspent casing and them being able to, to use tool markings to match those two things when it was ejected as opposed to shot through a barrel. And, and the case law bears that out. But nonetheless, they want to have the opportunity to use it because when you're dealing with a jury, most of the time experts X each other out. Because mm-hmm. you're going to have one expert saying one thing for the state and you're going to have the other one for the defense saying the thing that they need to say for the defense. And the jury's not going to, they're, they're not going to give it any mind in any way. And what they're going to remember is that there was a, a shell casing was found in between the girls that matched the type of weapon that Richard Allen had. So it's a very powerful tool to get in front of a jury, no matter what the experts say. So that's really what the attack is. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I do agree with Brett. And as I said, I think that ultimately my my prediction is that it will go to a Frank's hearing. And I believe that Judge Gull will ultimately deny the defense's motion. Uh, very interesting. By the way, Bob had the best shoes at CrimeCon. If he sends me a pic, I didn't take a pic. I will post them on Instagram. And I didn't know this. Bob Mata's father, powerhouse attorney, he represented John Wayne Gacy. That is no easy feat. Wow. The notorious serial killer. So wow. the more you know, uh, Tara That's Ellis big. says, did I see a preview pic that Mike King is coming on? He is coming on tomorrow, profiling evil. He'll he'll be talking about Rex Hewerman, who's going to be in court tomorrow uh, in the Long Island serial killer. Um, Rick, to you here, uh, analyst set writes, one thing fairly certain, Delphi has now reached cult status of West Memphis three stature. No matter what courts decide, people will argue about it forever. Wonder when famous music and film stars will weigh in. Um, what do you think of this comment? You think, you think she's right? Well, I think that we live in a time of conspiracy theories and misinformation when people are often caught up in kind of an alternate universe, you know, a fantasy. And I think uh, this particular cult claim, though, has no has no real basis, no f- factual foundation. I mean, who are these Odinists? Where do they come from? And I think that before people use the word cult, they should be very specific. They should be able to, in a, in a very concise way, delineate how they define this group is a cult, who is the leader, what is the history of the group, and how does the group's behavior parallel what they are saying about the crime scene and what they are saying about the crime itself. <clears throat> I just don't think there's anything here. There, there's just nothing. It's just conjecture and uh, creating, a, in my opinion, a false narrative. Mm. Uh, Kay writes, Susan, to you, uh, the prosecution is sure fighting like hell. And by the way, we need to get some of the details. I have some graphics I built. We'll get to those in just a minute. But uh, the prosecution is sure fighting like hell to keep the cameras out of the courtroom. They should be embarrassed for us to see that they didn't do anything in six years but spin their wheels. Uh, They got nothing. Easy to come down on on both the defense and the state a lot of times. But people like to knock prosecutors. Uh, What do you make of this comment? I don't mean to put you right in the middle of it, but I will, Susan. I feel like a bit in the middle of it. What Kay's saying, she has a good 
point to it. And the superintendent, Doug Carter, said throughout, look, I know that people want to know more. And I think it was the perfect storm to what Anna said, commented on before this, is that it's created this conspiracy theory case, if you will, because of what they didn't tell the public throughout the five plus years. And they wanted to be sure that they didn't have false confessions. They were hoping for what I believe was that one call, that one tip. So they put the tip line out there and they said, please, we need your help. Abby and Libby need your help. So that to me invited the public to say, oh, they need our help. We're in. We're all in. But how in do they really want it? Because then they said, wait a minute, we don't want you solving the crime. We don't want you putting side by sides next to the sketch. And it created this uh, culture of trying to solve it. People who really cared about Abby and Libby, but I believe it did get out of control a bit during this. I remember first going in um, to interview Sheriff Tobe Lesenby at the time and seeing a sign that said, be careful, the media could be listening. I mean, that it was do not say anything to anyone throughout. And I believe that created a snowball effect to what we see now. But to the defense, I remember early on when they did write that letter, then before when they first came on, they said, look, we need time to get caught up with this case. Well, I think they did a deep dive, obviously, saw this maybe looking at the conspiracy theories that were already out there. But what they did do is take away the talk of, which I was talking about it on a lot of news stations, was the confession to his wife and his mom. All of a sudden that went away. All of a sudden we're talking about cults. So what maybe they attempted to do is happening. We'll see what uh, Fran Gall says about it. Uh, Bundy Data says, Susan, right back to you on this one. Since you know the case inside out, as does Bob, but I want to get to him on a defense question. Did they call in the FBI or the Indiana forensic people like we have the Florida Department of Law Enforcement uh, here in Florida, which is where I happen to be, uh, who was called because the population was uh, 3000 and they needed pros. Uh, were, were the feds called in early on yeah. or no? This took close to five years. Yeah, they were in early on. They were. And uh, I called my cousin in the FBI and asked him about it. And he said, look, um, if they're missing, they're called in no matter what. When the bodies were found, they have to be invited in. I know that they were in. I remember them speaking at the first uh press conference saying, look, we're here arm in arm. We're going to put billboards. We're staying till the end. But then I feel like maybe um, they weren't given much information. I believe it was their duty to, to watch the tip line, if you will. I don't know if they were given all the information or maybe that they worked cohesively. Again, the superintendent always said, look, we're working arm in arm with the FBI, but it does make me wonder. I don't know for a fact, but it makes me wonder how much they were really let in. Uh, Rick, to you, I'm just curious, I mean, over your career studying cults, how often do you see uh, defense attorneys using the cult defense, if you will, uh, like they are here? Do you see, you know, it's kind of a Hail Mary, I guess, but do you see it more often than we think we see it? No, I, I think this is uh, very unusual that they've come up and concocted this bizarre theory. Uh, are there cults that kill people? Have there been cult leaders tried for murder? Absolutely, they, there have been. There have been horrendous crimes committed by cult leaders and cults. But typically, we have the name of that leader. Uh, we know that the leader's name is, for example, Yahweh Ben Yahweh in Florida, who ordered uh, his followers as an initiation to kill someone. And of course, there we, we know the name of uh, David Koresh, who had a heavily armed uh, cult in Texas 
that met with tragedy. So what, what I'm looking for is where's the substance? And I think it denigrates the suffering of cult members and the serious threats that cults pose to our, to our, to our country, to our local citizens, when you make up a cult. And, and in that way, you kind of create a, a situation where people are, are likely to dismiss the idea that a cult could be responsible for something because they'll say, well, maybe it's like those Delphi murders. It's just made up. Mm-hmm. And this isn't real. So what I'm, what I'm thinking is that the defense is not doing anybody any favor by using this storyline to try and, and get their way out of a, a situation where the evidence is compelling and they're trying to have evidence thrown out. Uh, Kathy reminded me that uh, Bob had dragonflies on his shoes, not to minimize the importance of what Rick Allen just said. Uh, Robin Robin Ray says, uh, can the gentleman uh, named by the defense, Bob, as the Odinist, have a defamation case? Uh, we do have his name. It was released publicly. Uh, does he have a defamation case? And then we'll get into some of the details of all this. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't war. Uh, one guy, there was four of them, all named. And, and again... Uh, and, and I don't want to challenge Rick on this, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that all these guys were in the police reports, this, you know, and Rick, I would ask you, have you ever seen photos of the crime scene? Uh, no, I have not, but I, I, I saw the description of, of objects placed, placed in certain positions that somehow indicated cult involvement. And, and I think it's terrible that these men are being defamed in this way. And I think they should have grounds for a defamation suit. And it again, it reminds me of, of other conspiracy theories about Satanists. Uh, for example, people will call me and they'll say, oh, you know, there's, I, I was once in a Satanic cult. Uh, they're still pursuing me. They're hounding me. They have my phones bugged. And so what I typically will say to them is you should go to local authorities. And the next thing they say is, oh, the police are in on it. The police are part of the conspiracy. Uh, so in, in my mind, this again parallels crazy conspiracy theories about satanic cults that I've heard before and, and quite frankly have heard as recently as just the last month or two. I mean, I get these calls, but when I ask people to give me very specific details on how this group exists and its history and so forth, they fail to come up with anything very convincing or or of any substance. And let me let me respond, Joe. For so, and, and I want to ask you. And I'm in the same position that you are. I have not seen the crime scene photos. We have, in fact, uh, gotten a description. If we're to believe what the defense put in its motion. And, and again, they do have access to the crime scene photos. So I'm assuming that what they described is, is very close to what we will actually see at the time of trial. Well, I'm not sure why you're making that face, you know, because what I, what I want to ask you is. No, is no, no, I'm making that face because my dog is barking at the <laughs> yeah, Which, which <laughs> by the way, I, I love because we are dog friendly on ST. We don't go through one show without a dog barking. So yeah, I, 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 no, I, I, no worries, Rick, but continue on. I think I'm on track for an Odinist that is trying to break in. <laughs> there so you go. I guess what my question to you is, 
at the time of trial, and we don't know if it's going to be televised or not, but once it becomes public record, the crime scene photographs are going to be released. And I guess my question to you would be, if, and you're an expert, it's not my foray, you know, it's not my lane. I don't pretend to know about cults. It's not what I study. I studied the law. And what I would ask you is if, if and when we are able to see those photographs and you look at them and they strike you as either one of two things, either a ruse wherein somebody said, okay, I'm going to try to make this look like it was a cult killing by placing the sticks and creating these so-called runes, painting this F on the tree. And, you know, I mean, at that point, would you have to acknowledge that maybe it wasn't completely made out of whole cloth because it's one of two things. Like I, like the amount of sticks I think we're going to see is not the amount of sticks that would be placed on the girls in order to try to hide the bodies. Okay. I like, I'm not getting that impression. My friend Brett, who, you know, from the prosecutor's podcast, he had tweeted sometimes sticks are sticks. Right. And sometimes they are. And sometimes sticks aren't just sticks. So, you know, and without the benefit of any of us having seen the actual crime scene photographs, I'm just curious, you know, to dismiss it offhand when there is some some evidence in there in terms of of people that were interviewed that said some disturbing things. Now, there was there was a, 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 a a guy that I'm not going to name one of the other four, an individual that allegedly confessed to his sister that he was at the scene and that they would. And this is again, drawn from the police reports. The defense isn't making this up out of whole cloth. Okay. I need to, you know, we need to, to get into the real facts of what was in the memo, strip away everything that, that you're, you're so uh, upset about in terms of them casting shade on the entire cult world. But when we look at the statements that were made, by these four individuals, you can't completely disregard them. You, you just can't because when you have one individual saying, look, my sister, I, I told her that, that I was down there. I told her that I saw it happen. And then the sister then goes and takes a polygraph and whether or not we think polygraphs are legitimate is a whole different uh, <laughs> episode, but she goes in, she passes because law enforcement wanted to know if she was being truthful in terms of her brother saying I was at the scene when the girls were killed. It's the same individual that in another police report goes back after they interview him briefly and asks the officer, Hey, you know, if it turns out, uh, you know, that I spit on one of the girls, but I have an explanation for it. Am I still going to get in trouble? So, you know, we have, and then we have another witness where, she loaned her car to her boyfriend. He takes the car on and around Valentine's Day. It comes back with blood on the vehicle. They make the connections between, you know, it said it took her three times. And this is 136 miles away from where the crime took place, you know, but it, it's known that this individual did drive to Delphi. So I like my point being, I hear what you're saying. I do. I, I, and I wish the defense wouldn't have done this because it's having the same effect on you that I think that it's having on a lot of people where it's backfiring in the sense that if there is some other alternate suspects out there, they may have destroyed their opportunity in being able to put those forward with any kind of credence because they decided to write this fantasy novel. You know what I'm saying? So because when I read it, I didn't care about the Odinism stuff in terms of you know, where it fit into the case itself. What I cared about was the first you know, acknowledgement of some of the things that they have seen in evidence. None of us have been privy to it. 
You know, they've kept a very tight seal on this case from the from the get. You know, all we've seen is what law enforcement has decided to release to us. We saw the bridge guy video. We heard the limited amount of sound. We got the two composites. You know what I mean? So, like, I, all I want, all Susan wants, everybody in this chat, all we want is is justice for the girls. We want the right guy going down on this. And, and I'm telling you, before this memo came out, I was not in love with this case against Richard Allen based on the probable cause affidavit. It, it's, it basically boils down to, to mere presence at its core, meaning that he put himself at the scene on or around the time that the girls went missing. And beyond that, there's not a ton there. There's just really not. I mean, I, I live two and a half hours from Delphi. I drive there for, for every hearing. I'm in that town. I, uh, Carhartts and jeans, is mm-hmm. that is what people wear in rural Indiana. That's what they, that, that, that is well, number one. That. You go you into can... a diner, that's what they're wearing. Everybody, all men, boots, jeans, Carhartt jacket in the fall. You, so, can, tell mean, Bob is good at, you can tell you're good at your job, Bob, because uh, you are saying that it is a possibility that there's another scenario playing out. I want to give Rick a quick chance to uh, respond to that, and we got to get back to Susan. But Ned Smith writes, how about patches on their jail badges of Hale Odin? Uh, there are reports that within the Department of Corrections, and I believe Richard Allen's being held in the state prison, that there are guards who are members of this cult, uh, Rick Allen Ross, and that they're leaning on him and, you know, weighing on him. Uh, what do you make uh, of all that and your response to Bob? And then we'll get back to Susan in one second. Well, I think it just sounds like an, an, an entangled conspiracy theory with a conspiracy theory. I mean, basically what I'd say, Bob, is that the defense attorneys could interpret the crime scene. And I think that's what they're relying on from what I've read is interpretation, symbols that they think have a deeper meaning that they will then spin in their defense, uh, saying that somehow this is linked to a cult. But you know what, what, what they're missing is let's take this cult and look at it and understand its history, its behavior, and let's show that this, uh, this crime fits within the framework of the history of this supposed group and its practices. And that's what they totally have failed to do. And, and then I think by them, uh, perhaps there are white supremacist groups in Indiana. I would suspect there are. Uh, but are they in, engaged in ritual sacrifices? And why would they choose two white girls to sacrifice? How is, how is this all, uh, you know, part of this group and its history? And, and how is it directed and what is its purpose? I, I, I just don't see it. Well, I, uh, let me answer real quick. So, I mean, in terms of, and again, this is, I'm just drawing it from the, the defense's memo. I, I obviously don't have access to the discovery file. So, you know, as you said, everything in the law, there's, there's, it's all boils down to interpretation for both sides. You know, the prosecution looks at evidence, they interpret it, defense does the same thing. So, I mean, that that's really the crux of law <laughs> in terms of interpretation and, and, you know, whether it's be a statute, whether it be evidence, you have two sides interpreting the same thing very differently, which is the case that we have here. Now, their answer to your question was that uh, the, the one gentleman, the BH guy that we're not going to name, that his son was dating Libby. 
no, Abby. Abby mm -hmm. was dating this guy. Now she's she's a young girl, so I, they used quotes when they used the word dating. I've got an 11 year old and I know that she has a little, little friend boy <laughs> that they'll message back and forth and maybe they go see a movie together, you know, so they you can better keep eyes on him, Bob. You better keep <laughs> eyes on that. Always Joel. I never, I never <laughs> take my eyes off these guys. Uh, you know, so like, so that kind of is a connection between the victims and these gentlemen, they then put together these gentlemen by way of, certain evidence that they have in terms of they know that they're Facebook friends and things of that nature. And, and their theory is that it is white supremacy, that they're using Odinism basically is, you know, the way I look at it, and, and I can confirm that there is definitely white supremacists in Indiana. My son married uh, his, his wife. Uh, his parents just bought, uh, or her parents just bought a house in a little town called, uh, called Monrovia, which happens to be one of the first chapters of the Ku Klux Klan. So it's it, it, it it's there. I, I think that that maybe what have what possibly could have happened is these these guys in terms of white supremacists liked the show Vikings and just thought it was, you know, Odinism was was neat and you know they kind of liked the vibe of it. And you know there is it's it's really based on a hate thing. It's not based on a you know, a, a worship of Odin and hoping to go to Valhalla at some point, but the, you know that they're using whatever they're doing is as a tool and as a mask or a beard uh, in order to to subject what they believe was race mixing because that's what the, the defense's theory is. They they had said that one of the two girls uh, that one of the mothers was dating outside of the race and that that was the motive for it. So. You know, I mean, I, I I think this is just becoming more and more impossible to believe. I mean, it's a, it's interesting, uh, but but I I honestly have to tell you, Bob, that there are I don't know of any cult that is a white supremacist group or otherwise that embraces uh, Norse mythology and that somehow has a history of this type of behavior sacrifices. What I can tell you is that there have been there have been urban myths about satanic ritual abuse and satanic sacrifices for years. Uh, but they turned out to be just smoke and mirrors, no substance, nothing. And so uh, people will often say to me, well, Rick, you know, you, you think there's always a cult out there. Well, Bob, this is a situation where I say there is no such thing. And I, I think they've got a very steep slope climb to prove this kind of a theory. Yeah, it, it, or look, I mean, they're, they're, let, let, let's let let the oh, author let the I, author I, down the hill. No, no, I'm, we're, just, I'm just listening to a very logical conversation. Truly, am between Rick, the expert, and Bob, who's the attorney. And I don't think that people who believe this and they're they are out there because people have texted me. They're all in. They believe it not anyone connected to this case and maybe they're no longer friends i digress but so the back and forth does it just take one juror does it just take reasonable doubt are they going to logically talk about this like we are and have that conversation and bob i wanted to ask you a question on the probable cause affidavit do you think it's redacted enough to where we will see more evidence than the unspent bullet? Because reading Brian Koberger's, it was very different. I mean, that was full of evidence. Do you right. think there will be more in Richard Allen's? So it's a great question. And I spent 
I don't know how many hours debating people. And I ultimately had to start doing podcast episodes to try to make people understand. So I, I've handled some pretty heavy duty murder cases in my time. And essentially, when you get a probable cause affidavit for an arrest, mm-hmm. because that, that, that was what a lot of lay people were saying, oh, well, they're holding back evidence in this PCA. There's going to be more. And what I've found in my 20 plus years of practicing laws that when law enforcement goes to the prosecutors, and I just wanted it to be clear mm-hmm. that, that these PCAs are not drawn up in a case like this are not drawn up by law enforcement officers. Yes, the affidavit is signed by them, but it's based on the cops going in or the sheriffs going in and saying, look, this is the evidence we have. The prosecutors then draft these because they understand what the standard is that needs to be met mm-hmm. in order to get it. The law officers, you know, I mean, if you've got a PCA for a, for a burglary, yeah, a law officer can write it. When you've got a, a, a PCA for a complicated murder uh, that has a lot of moving parts, it's it's almost always going to be a prosecutor. And I have no doubt in this case that it was the prosecution that drafted the PCA. And, and I'm just going to tell you, it, it, at the time that they're drafting it, they're, they're putting forth their best foot. And the, and the reason that they do that is for, for two reasons. The thing that I was talking about prior, because mm-hmm. this is the state's first opportunity to get their case in chief out to the public at large, which is the very jury pool that we're all concerned about the defense Mm -hmm. motion affecting. It has the same effect when the prosecution brings out their uh, probable cause affidavit. Everybody that's out there that's saying, Richard Allen's the guy, Richard Allen's the guy. Nope, nope. You know, that's not hearing anything else is basing that opinion on that document and nothing else. Mm -hmm. So it goes, it cuts both ways. So the state knows that. So they're not going to hold back powerful evidence in the PCA. And beyond that, they know that the defense is going to absolutely be attacking that at trial. And prior to that, in motions, they're going to seek to quash the arrest based on, and and we're seeing it now. I mean, first they're attacking the warrant. They want to try to knock out the bullet. If they can, if they can get the evidence suppressed from the warrant from, of the search of Richard Allen's home, they then have to remove all of that from the probable cause affidavit for the arrest, it then leaves. So, you know, the matching of the bullet through the unspent casing to his weapon, that comes out of the PCA. All the things that are were found at the house that were included in the probable cause affidavit for the arrest then are removed. And then the question becomes, was there enough probable cause for the arrest? So it's it's a it's a staged attack on it. And 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 Rick, to your end, I, I mean I I wish, frankly, because again, all I care about is making sure that they have the right guy. Mm-hmm. And you made like a great point because when I was comparing the two affidavits for probable cause between Delphi and Idaho 4, you've got one, this being the Idaho 4 case, which has heavy, heavy evidence of guilt. It leans heavy guilty in my estimation. Mm-hmm. As you see, you know, online and social media, that's getting attacked as well. You've got two camps that have formed in that. I always try to to reserve my opinion until the actual evidence is heard at trial mm-hmm. because I'm an attorney and because that's what we should all do. I mean, it's mm-hmm. fine for people to speculate to a certain extent, reasonably and, and with caution. But when it gets dangerous and people are pointing fingers at other people, it becomes a different thing altogether. But but then you look at Delphi and, and yeah, that very different. Say, very different. It, it read thin to me. It read mm-hmm. to, you know, there's a, a saying in the law, you know, mere presence is not enough. You know, and we know the fact that they buried this this statement from Richard Allen that he gave either the day 
that the girls went missing or the day after to a resource officer. And that got buried for five years. Shows you kind of what was going on with this investigation. All right. I mean, like when I read it, it disturbed me so much because much like you, Susan, I've been following and involved with, with, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to understand what happened to the girls for years. So when the arrest came, I was obviously jumping into that, but you know, I like, I'm worried, I'm worried. And it's not me rooting against Richard Allen being the guy. It's me worried that he might not be the guy based on the evidence that they've been able to produce. So I hope that they have. And I always tell people, I'm like, look, once the arrest takes place, that is when the majority of the investigation takes place. People have this misconception that once an arrest is made, well, they're done. Law officers are celebrating. No, they're, they're just digging in. They have more access to the defendants post-arrest than any time prior to. Mm-hmm. That's when they're getting into the house. That's when they're getting into all of his devices. You know, everything that happens is when they're digging into him personally. They're talking to everybody that he knows to try to put together a cohesive case where they're digging up evidence. And that all happens in the pendency of, of, you know, this pre-trial phrase, which, which can last for years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This thing isn't going to get to trial. I mean, I know it's set for January. I, I don't anticipate it will actually go in January. Again, I, I've been involved with murder cases of this type where you had years go by and, you know, it just gets kicked. There's a lot of work to be done by both sides to prepare the case. There's a lot of motion work that's still going to happen. So, I mean, in my opinion, I think that what was in the PCA initially was what they had at the time. That doesn't mean that they haven't collected more evidence. But the one thing that I did, again, stripping away all the Odinism stuff, Mm -hmm. I'm digging in for what what matters in the motion. And the one thing that they put was that pursuant to the evidence that they've gotten from the state, that they found nothing on Richard Allen's electronic devices connecting him to the girls or to the Odinism thing. To me, what I care about is the girls. Mm-hmm. It always becomes a thing. Were they lured there by someone or was just total happenstance? So, I mean, that's been my experience yeah. in terms of probable cause affidavits. The state typically puts their best foot forward. They're not going to hold back their strongest evidence. Cause, and if you look at it like this, the defense is getting it anyway. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? It's the old cliche. Time will tell. Uh, The trial is supposed to kick off in January. I want to get back to Susan, but a tale of two comments here. And I guess the defense is sort of doing their job just by uh, the fact that podcasts like ours are now discussing this. And the fact that I invited Rick Allen Ross, a cult expert, to, uh, you know, sort of vet out what Odinism is. But Tali says, but wasn't the crime scene a little strange with the sticks and all followed by this comment? Odinist narrative is completely nonsensical. So uh, the two defense attorneys here are Bradley Rossi and Andrew Baldwin. Uh, again, uh, Richard Allen's legal team, and I haven't brought a photo. So those of you who do not know, uh, here is Richard Allen, uh, the three different faces. He has lost a ton of weight um, uh, in the Department of Corrections and having a lot of issues mentally and physically. But Richard Allen's legal team argues that Carroll County Sheriff Tony Liggett, who we've talked about, quote unquote, chose to hide crucial information from the search warrant affidavit and provided false statements in said search warrant affidavit. So uh, basically uh, they are building the case that he is hiding stuff, um, that the state is hiding uh, evidence from things of evidentiary value from the state. Uh, Their defense, as we mentioned now, talking about this ritualistic sacrifice that Rick Allen Ross 
is uh, not buying an entirely new narrative. And then in this 136-page court filing, I'm going to bring up this graphic here, uh, and we will read it together. I'll get uh, Susan's take. There is overwhelming evidence, according to the defense in this case, supporting the following, that members of a pagan Norse religion called Odinism, hijacked by white nationalists, ritualistically sacrificed Abigail Williams and Liberty German. That is the exact language. Um Susan, you just heard Rick basically shake his head. We don't we don't have a leader of this cult. He's not buying it. Uh, what did you make of it when you first heard about this? Well, I think what Rick is saying is, is completely valid, being an expert on this. And what Bob is saying, if you strip away everything else, and it really comes down to what they believe Liggett did to get that search warrant. And uh, the prosecutor, Nick McClellan, saying, look, it was based on a conversation he had with Rick, who said he was there again. This is in October before the arrest that what he was wearing on the bridge and saying that that's enough information to get that search warrant. So I think it boils down to that, to what Judge Frangel will rule on the search warrant, because if there is no more in that probable cause affidavit, as Bob spoke to if it is the unspent bullet and that's thrown out, then they're in trouble. Then what happens next? So I think the ruling by Fran Gull obviously will be telling. Um, Rick, to you, just a comment. I mean, these are the comments we're getting. I'll cover your face here, which I'll uncover in a second. Hijacked by white nationalists, just too weird. Um, I mean, but Rick, Indiana is kind of known to be a hotbed of, uh, you know, neo-Nazi activity, um, but this whole Norse mythology, I mean, it just doesn't jive with you from what I can tell. Well, I, I, I just don't see where they can connect the dots, where they can connect a specific group uh, doing, the, doing this terrible murder. Uh, and, and how is it tied to their beliefs, their behavior, their, their history? So, you know, for example, uh, there was, uh, in my opinion, a cult double murder in Texas. There was a young married couple. They had a baby. Uh, they, they, they disappeared. Later, they found their bodies. Many years later, through DNA testing, they linked their bodies to a baby that was put up for adoption. And as this entire story unraveled over and over again, it was linked to an identifiable cult group. Uh, with a leader who had a criminal history of violence and drug deals. And so it's my opinion that that group was responsible for the death of those young parents. But we could contextualize it historically. Uh, the parents had been uh, enamored with this group, uh, which traveled around the country. And for a while, they were with them. And in fact, the group had their car which they later uh, told the family that they could buy back from them. So there were ties to the group. Uh, the group had a history and you could create a plausible foundation. Uh, I think a very solid one that the group was responsible for the deaths of this young couple. Now, how is the defense going to create that same foundation about this supposed cult group that Really, I, I don't think they've really cited a history or or a pattern of behavior that would connect to this crime. Uh, this is an interesting comment. I think they meant, uh, 
you know, the uh, the white nationalism here, social media connected KK to the murders, not law enforcement. But, Susan, uh, the bigger question back to you, in your opinion, how has the social media landscape changed sort of the the way these mega cases are perceived? Uh, in the court of public opinion. How much time do I have? Uh, you have all night, Susan. You're from New Jersey. You're from New Brunswick. A stone's throw from Highland Park. You have all night. I am. I am. So I you're saying it. I can wrap it up quickly. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, it, it changed it significantly in so many ways, um, not only with social media, also podcasts as well, and just the community that's really engaged in these cases. And there's some that I've seen who um, – Meanwhile, who are rooting for justice for Abby and Libby, and that's great too. But then there's also people who maybe go down that rabbit hole and know that the headline, you can click on that, and usually there's no name or face to it. It's just kind of this this odd site. But I, I think that changed a lot of things, and I don't think Delphi Law Enforcement I think it was evolving with the case. And I think that they saw this as it was going on and saying, okay, wait a minute. Because during the case, I remember a detective saying, look, um, stop putting up side-by-side photos. You're implicating people online. How can you do this? You're subject to a, a lawsuit here. But then I felt like, obviously, there's no stopping this. So it it goes both ways in terms of people who are out there um, advocating for Abby and Libby and, and want good things to happen. But then the rumor mill and the rabbit hole, it's, it's never ending. So you kind of have to go in... Um, logically uh, and get the information you want and then decide on your own what the evidence is. And that will be key. So I, I'm not sure if, I wonder what you guys think, if you think cameras will be allowed in the courtroom and if you think they should be. Uh, Bob, quick answer on that court cameras. Yes or no? Well, oddly the defense wants it and the prosecution doesn't, which is unusual. True. <laughs> so True. I, I think ultimately Fran Gull is not going to allow cameras in the courtroom. And, and it's strange to me the defense is asking for it. And the state is saying, no, thank you. Maybe they will because of all the theories. And, and, and now that we just saw what the defense released, maybe that will just um, add fuel to the fire if there is no cameras in the courtroom. We'll see, though, what she decides. My show, so you all know, is officially off the quote-unquote rundown. As Susan knows, we usually have a rundown. I put together my own little form, and uh, it's off the rails, but I love it. So, uh, um, Rick, keep an eye on this comment. I'm going to put up a graphic for you. Allie Law says, even if the Odinist angle is silly, what about the ritualistic nature of the crime scene? Is Rick denying that the scene as described has a ritual as- ritualistic aspect? And this is straight from the motion here. Uh, let me get rid of this comment. This is straight from the motion. Attorneys say Libby was found at the base of a tree with four tree branches of varying sizes intentionally placed in a very specific and arranged pattern on her naked body. The 14-year-old was positioned flat on her back with her left arm stretched above her head, touching the base of the largest tree and her right arm positioned along the side of her body. Both her hands were covered in blood. What say you, Rick? Is this part is this ritualistic or is this just coincidence? Well, I think it's a matter of interpretation and perhaps the murderer, it had significance to that person, but how does it link to a specific cult group? Is there a history of sacrifices being made in exactly this way that creates a factual context for us to understand this ritual sacrifice? 
I mean, we need more than just the interpretation that it was a ritual sacrifice. It could just be the the bizarre uh, way in which the the perpetrator wanted to stage the crime. Other mm-hmm. than that, I, I I don't really see how it connects to an established historical cult. Uh, so. Uh, Bob, back to you, by the way, E. Nick, with a very logical comment. We don't have all the evidence, which is what I think uh, most of the guests have been saying tonight. And we will uh, when this trial proceeds, uh, if it ever does. It's moving at a snail's pace. But, Bob, let's look at this statement. Uh, This is part of the 136-page motion filed by the defense. The evidence in the memo, uh, it says, Bob, was found scattered over no less than 10 hard drives and several flash drives provided by the prosecution, meaning that the defense is not making wild accusations, but rather primarily relaying facts on and information that is backed up by the prosecution or the prosecutor's own discovery, even discovery that the prosecution just provided to the defense as late as September 8th, 2023. What do you make of this part of the uh, motion, Bob? I, I mean, that's that's the saying that we've got receipts. You know, and I mean, look, if the defense is going to take the the massive risk and, and not file this thing sealed, because they knew, they knew what the response of the public would be to this. It's like all of us have said it in this particular stream. Like, it, it's not surprising that it was explosive and that it, it, it dominated the news cycle for days and frankly, it's still dominating the news cycle because it's that kind of a pleading in a massive case they absolutely knew what that response was going to be. And what that tells me is, is that they had the statements that they pulled. Again, everything came from the discovery from the state, from affidavits and from depositions of law enforcement. They deposed these guys before, and I'm talking to these guys being law enforcement. Mm-hmm. They deposed Liggett. They deposed the state trooper. You know, they, they got information. They compiled it. They're not making these things up. And, and to answer Rick's question, I, I myself, as soon as I saw the names of all these individuals they named, went onto their Facebook pages. They are Odinists. <laughs> There's, there was a, whether they're practicing or whether they just admire the faith or whatever, they definitely are guys that, that are enamored with the concepts of it. They have it right there on their Facebook pages, including the two guards, which I am hoping that Joel's going to get to because it goes to what is currently the strongest piece of evidence in the case that the state has currently, which is Richard Allen confessing to his wife on a recorded jail call. Right. They address that in there and they make the connection to the, uh, the oldest thing, because to me, if I'm the attorney and I was sitting in that courtroom and I don't know if you were Susan back on the last hearing when they were trying to get uh, him moved out of Westville, uh, penitentiary. Oh, in June. No, I wasn't yeah. in there. You know, and that was the first time any of us heard about this, these confessions. I didn't and- hear the microphones were low, what they weren't working. So those yeah. in the courtroom, and he could speak to this. We're thinking it what? was tough. It Did was tough, come- but like, it was really uh, McLeanland saying it in open court. Well, you know, we, we, we know for a fact, we have it transcribed. We have the recordings. Richard Allen has confessed to his wife on recorded jail calls that he killed the girls and when Rosie didn't object to it, it was, I knew that they, it had some teeth. So then my head exploded right there in the courtroom. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to put it back together. And it was it was unbelievable. So that became the strongest piece of evidence that they have. It, it, far, it, it far outweighs anything else that they put forward. So to me, when I was reading through it, I'm like, okay, well, where are they going to get to? How are they going to address 
his confession. And then they finally get to it. So I began to wonder if all the Odinism, because they, it's going to be established that these two guards had these patches on their state issued uniforms. Like it's like, that is not made up. These two guards were wearing these patches sergeants. They were the same two guys that at that hearing that the defense was saying, look, I'm trying to come in and have my attorney client meeting to prepare for trial. And I've got this guard with a handheld camera standing outside of a window filming my guy. Yeah, I don't, Bob, I don't have, I don't have that part of the motion, but I do have this. This is a direct quote from the defense filing of last week uh, about the Department of Corrections officers. And the quote goes as following, not coincidentally, members Odinists of the same pagan cult are employed as corrections officers for the Indiana Department of Corrections at Westville Correctional Facility. It is inside of the cold concrete walls of the maximum security unit of this dilapidated reformatory that Richard Allen is being threatened, intimidated, and mentally abused. So, uh, Bob, that's part of what you were referring to. Well, it's exactly but, what, yeah, it's exactly, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Rick, go ahead. Rick, go ahead. Here, here's the thing. Anton LaVey established the Church of Satan, and it received a great deal of attention, a great deal of publicity. And certainly there were Satanists, people that followed Anton LaVey, but were they responsible for ritual sacrifices and, and murders? Nothing was ever connected to them. So there can be a particularly weird group. Uh, they can believe in aliens from outer space or the Norse gods such as Odin, but are they criminals? And do they engage in horrible crimes of murder and sacrifice as is being claimed here? I think that's really the issue. How do you establish that, that as a direct uh, outgrowth of their group, uh, that they did these murders? I think that's 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 where they're stuck. Uh, they need to be able to, to establish that the group's behavior coincides with the crime and that this is their history, this is their purpose and that these rituals are directly, or this ritual murder is directly attached to their belief system, and that they did this to fulfill that belief system. Uh, Venus Gal, I'm not gonna bring this comment up, uh, Rick says, if Richard Allen was there and admitted to being there, which he did, if anyone else is responsible, he was with them. Is it possible, Rick Allen Ross, that uh, Richard Allen uh, is a member of this Odinist group, or is that just insane? It, he could, he could, in fact, uh, hold some of those beliefs. He he could have hung around these Odinists, but uh, the idea that this is all uh, organized by that cult and that it's part of their of, of their belief system, I mean, why did that not come out in his in his discussion that was recorded uh, between himself and his wife at the jail? I mean, and how how would you connect all those dots? I mean, this just really seems to be a rather fanciful, layered upon layer conspiracy theory. By the okay, way, so you know the state the go. state is the state's okay. watching, and uh, Rick Allen Ross is about to get a big check to come uh, testify in this case, real quick, <laughs> and then I'll get to you, Bob. Uh, but Rick, staged or posed? What's the difference? Is there a difference when it comes to cults between staged and posed? 
Well, I think that the bottom line here is that uh, they need to demonstrate that the way in which the crime scene was arranged, the sticks, the hands covered with blood, the hand touching the tree, that this is part of this group and it's part of their practice, that they've done this type of thing before or similar things, and they need to show that pattern. I mean, that is the way that cults have been connected to horrible crimes, is by people inside the group discussing the practices of the group and how it linked to the crime, uh, people that were witnesses to other crimes that the group committed. That's what we're looking for here, not simply the defense looking at the crime scene and saying, I think this is part of a ritual. These sticks have significance. They need to do more than that in order to make such claims. Frankie Figs, Bob knows what he speaketh about. And the most important comment, I just subbed to Defense Diaries channel, which means that uh, Bob is now buying me a drink in Nashville. Um, I want to get back. I want to get back to Susan Hendricks on this, um, and then Bob will let you back in here. Uh, you know, sometimes I get hate mail if I'm uh, giving two of the three guests too much talking time, and I got to make sure that <laughs> I love doesn't. Hearing Susan speak, so that's, that's yeah, that's you know, I got to be careful with that. And you can send your hate mail to Bob Mata at hatemail.com. Uh, so the defense, as we talked about, I just want to put this out there in kind of straightforward fashion. They named five people. We're not going to name right. any of them um, who they believe are suspects. One is initials are BH. Uh, and they write in this uh, memo that the court's going to learn in the body of this memorandum that this guy was connected to the crimes, the crime scene, and to other men who had confessed to the crime. The evidence of those connections will be provided in the body of the memo. This is a lot of lawyer language here, mm-hmm. saying the same thing over and over, including copies of the images found on his Facebook page. So, Susan, we've got the uh, Facebook page. By the way, this guy says he would sue uh, the defense, but he has no money. Um but this guy, as Bob mentioned earlier, also said uh, that his own son uh, had dated, quote unquote, dated Abby, one of the young girls, and that one of these guys confessed to his sister. Um, Susan, I mean, if that is true about the confession, doesn't that open up a gigantic, massive, enormous can of worms? Well, I think the 130 plus pages is an enormous amount of information, theories, So what I'm interested in is who will be called as a witness and where were they February 13th, 2017, and who can prove that they weren't at the bridge or that they were at the bridge. What stuck out to me in covering this for so many years, and there were a lot of names thrown around, as we we all know in this case, um, no one was ever arrested and charged until they were until it was Richard Allen. To me, that was telling. There were a lot of things that weren't told to the public, but when he was arrested and charged, I thought, well, there must be evidence to do so. I think it will play out in court. And that's why I think maybe she will, uh, Judge Frangle, allow cameras in because there's so much speculation and just looking at this document. I think it comes down to what they can prove. Not their theories, what they can prove, and did they organize something on that day? I'll go back to what Becky Patty told me when I first met her uh, and first interviewed her. She said, look, Libby, it, it seemed like last minute that it wasn't planned, where she said, 
hey, grandma, can you take me to the bridge? And then to Kelsey, can you please take me to the bridge? And Kelsey said, I felt like a bad sister. I was always saying no. So I thought, okay, I'll be nice. And I said, um, but help grandma do something. So it wasn't an exact time that they had to be there. So this whole group organized all of this with without knowing, with waiting for certain Abby and Libby specifically. So there's a lot of holes here and there's a lot of speculation and a huge storyline that anyone could fill in the blanks. But really it comes down to me, evidence. Who's on the witness list? What can they prove? And we'll see it on the stand. By the way, shout out to Mikey S. who became a YouTube member. We really appreciate that. I always say best guest, better community. Um, a question from uh, STS Nation member, Amy Rhyme. Love the dog. Love the dog. Don't worry. Um <laughs> By the way, the COE is going to kill me, so I'm thinking of getting uh, another one, um, which I have to be careful about here in that dog bar. But uh, Susan, we have a guest named Amy, uh, an SCS Nation member named Amy Rhyme, and she wrote me a question and said, could you please ask Susan? And it goes as follows. Has anybody heard Richard Allen's voice? None of the different videos and podcasts have mentioned how Richard Allen's voice sounds and how his co-workers, wife, and friends did not recognize his voice, the down-the-hill voice is a very distinct voice. Your answer. Yeah. That's a great question, and it's um, something that many people have thought about. Um, even friends and family of mine, my father and attorney, saying, what do you mean they can't find the guy? His voice and his, his walk, can't they get the guy? And then at that press conference in April where he says guys down the hill, didn't guys sound very different? It did to me. I don't know if it was in the order that was on the recording. Doesn't sound like it. He sounds very young and friendly and then down the hill. Um, but you never, I saw videos, I believe it's from his wife's Facebook page that I saw um, soon after his arrest where he doesn't really talk much. There's something, you hear his voice at times on that, but right. For, to have no one recognize the voice, or if you're a family member, can you explain it away? Because who would think that their husband or their father would be able to kill two young girls, brutally murder two people without knowing that? Can you explain it away? Is that part of the denial? I don't know, but that would be interesting to see and to hear from him. Mm. By the way, Susan sounds way too sweet to be from New Jersey, but I'm going to take her word <laughs> on it. Um, this is my sweet voice. <laughs> <laughs> it changes, I bet. I know how that goes. The Jersey comes out, I guarantee it. Um, so, Bob, someone asked us earlier, very early in this entire uh, show, uh, about the uh, spent 40 caliber bullet. And by the way, they found a gun uh, that uses a 40 caliber uh um, ammunition in Richard Allen's home uh, when they executed that search warrant. But someone asked about the uh, evidentiary value of a spent casing versus an unspent casing. Uh, can you address that very quickly? Yeah, the uh, and before I do, I want to get back. I deferred to Rick, but I want to get back to the confession thing, because remember, it is the biggest piece of evidence. And by the way, Richard Allen confessed five times. But go ahead, Bob. <laughs> so uh, the answer is they call it tool markings. They used to call it ballistics. Now they call it tool markings and unspent. There has not been one case in U S history where they have gotten a conviction based solely on an unspent casing being ejected from a weapon. Now, Mike King, who you're having on tomorrow night, him and I were on Vinnie Politan. Yeah. If Vinnie asked him that question, I felt terrible to say, Mike, because Mike gave it a 10 out of 10 in terms of powerful evidence. <laughs> I felt bad. I was like, oh, Mike, that's 
not exactly true. And Mike came and he said, I did research that night. And you're right. It's not true. It's, By the way, I got to interrupt for one second to tell you, Vinnie Politan saw Carm from across the uh, a podcast row, which was enormous, and came running up and he gave her a bear hug. Carm couldn't believe it. Uh, she was winded, but happy it was Vinnie Politan. Go ahead. <laughs> so I heard it's like a I fingerprint, had... but I don't know much about the unspent bullet either. So it's new. Yeah, and, and it, you know, the difference used to be back when they could maybe rely on ballistics a little more heavily in terms of it being somewhat uh, conclusive scientifically was back when all guns were handmade. You know, now everything is machine made. Essentially, every barrel that's coming out is identical to the other. It, like back in the old days, every barrel was handmade. So you're going to have different defects. So it was like a fingerprint. So when that, when that bullet would spin out of the chamber and through the barrel, it would have distinct marks every single time when it's, when that went away, when everything started being made in, in factories and just pressed out. I mean, occasionally can you get defects in there? Of course, but for the most part, not so much. I mean, I, I could just tell you that that's the, in the legal world, mm-hmm. that has gone by the wayside as being definitive scientific evidence where anyone should be convicted, especially in a case that's a death penalty case. So, I mean, it's got evidentiary value. How much mm-hmm. is going to depend on the jury? Again, like I said, the experts are going to X each other out typically. Yeah. You know, if you get jurors that here, look, they found a bullet of the same caliber to one of the most popular own type of caliber weapons in the entire country, which is 40 caliber, it's still going to resonate with some jurors. You know what I mean? It's like, even yeah. though they're not going to really be able to match it that way, it's it's not powerful like DNA. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, it's just not. So, I mean, but it's still, it still has evidentiary value to the jury. Mm-hmm. I got to let Rick uh, respond to this. We've got the best community and also a tough one. Jane says the longer Rick Allen Ross talks, the more he sounds like he's stonewalling on the issue. Rick is cracking a bit of a smile. Rick, have at it. Well, you know, I think my dog is stonewalling. (laughs) at, 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 At any rate, let me just say that what I'm looking for is just something really compelling. I want to see something more than a story. I want to see uh, parallel facts that support that narrative, and I just don't see it. I mean, this uh, yes, there are Odinists. Yes, there are white supremacists. But how does that uh, directly relate to this particular crime? I mean, are, is, is there a group with a leader who has a pattern of behavior that would lend itself to this narrative? And I'm, I'm not aware of such a group. I mean, uh, it seems almost like what the defense did was they, 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 they are conjecturing and they're aware that maybe some people are enamored with Odinism or, or even that they're white supremacists. I wouldn't find that surprising. But that doesn't mean that they killed these two girls in a ritual that was directly part of their belief system and their group. And so what we want to see is perhaps other uh, witnesses coming forward during the trial that will say, well, I I also was in this group. Mm -hmm. And this is what I witnessed firsthand as a member of the group. I saw them do violent things. They preached about violence. And this led to this crime. I mean, that that is what we're really looking for is that type of testimony and that type of evidence. 
Um, I'd like Susan to address this. Uh, Richard Allen confessed because some people are new to the case here at STS. We really have not covered it. But before I get to that uh, about the confession, look at this. I knew it was coming, Susan. More Susan, please, from the society <laughs> page. I predicted it, and I knew it would be here. Copper Horse making a great point. Please uh, hit like, subscribe, and share. It helps get the algorithm chugging. That's what my daughter says. And uh, look at this. I'm going to get drunk uh, in Nashville. I subscribed, or she subscribed, to Bob Mata's Defense Diaries on the YouTube channel. Uh, I am not T-Pain, one of our moderators. So uh, that's another drink. Who's keeping count? Um, Susan had <laughs> Susan right. Hendricks, um, what about these confessions, you know? Yeah, I was on with Vinny, speaking of, one of the best, that yeah. after that hearing um, where we heard about the, the confession and then we waited for the documents, I believe. And then in the documents, it says that he was eating paper at one point. So it seemed to me um, very much that maybe he was acting a certain way after these confessions, because when you, it's obvious that you're being recorded, right? In prison, it, it, you, you let the caller know and the person know. So to me, that said that I can't explain why he would confess unless he had just had it and wanted to tell his wife and his mother. But um, to, I feel like it was trying to explain it away with the eating of the paper and then that picture of where he looked. He did look terrible, look thin. And and then I, I believe on the stand, and Bob, you were there. Didn't they have the warden on the stand saying, no, he's actually treated equal? And, uh, you know, Sheriff Tope Lesenby was on the stand. We'll see how they explain those confessions away. And I guess it will be the guards, right? Right. And then that was like, I had deferred to Rick, but uh, that was my bigger point. So mm. like that was the thing that I wanted to see if they were going to address in the memo, because as I've said, and I'm going to keep saying it, the most powerful evidence that we know of yeah. right now is the fact that they have the man that they've accused of killing the girls, confessing to it, to his wife, who theoretically is talking to the person that he trusts most in the world. Mm over a phone line that's been recorded. They transcribe it. So then I'm like, okay, well that like when I'm sitting there is not podcast, Bob, but defense attorney, Bob, I'm like, Oh my God, what a right. nightmare. It's like, it's like the nightmare scenario where the wife is calling and like, okay, uh, my husband just got off the, the prison line confessing to me what is going on. The lawyers are jumping in the car. They're driving out to the prison and saying what is happening. So, the, and they did address it. And it's, it's like, that's what I was starting to say. I'm curious is, is because they knew that these guards would, did have these Odin patches and, and I, I don't know if they're actively practicing, if it's a concept they just like. I don't know any of those because I don't know the individuals. Mm -hmm. I know that, again, I went under their socials and they clearly are enamored with the concept of Odinism, whether they're practicing, whether they're part of a larger group. I don't know. But I do, I do believe that the defense is going to be able to prove that these two guys and they were absolutely filming them. I was watching it during the hearing. They admitted to it. They said that the camera was broken in the particular room that they had set up for the attorney-client visit for them to prepare for trial. As a defense attorney, I was disgusted by it. It's like, I mean, they have to be able to prepare for trial without ears yeah. of the state listening in. So well, then it gets fleshed out in this motion that it happens to be these exact two guards, these two sergeants, they were sitting there filming and that they were turning Richard Allen's chair towards the window that they were filming behind so they could see his mouth. Now, what I took great exception to in that particular memo is the way that they did it, where they say they basically quote, they say, 
Richard Allen was in such a position that he was being watched to where he could not say, hey, these guys told me that if I don't confess to killing the two girls, that they're going to kill my wife and family. So, And they put that in quotes. Mm -hmm. But then you have to read the footnote where Mike Rossi then says, Rosie says, look, okay, Richard Allen didn't actually say this. So in the body of the memo, they make it seem like Allen said that. But then in the teeny little footnote, they say he didn't actually say that. But we're saying that he didn't say that because these guards are constantly watching him, whether it's filming him during meetings with us, the lawyers, or whether it's him just being in a room everywhere he is, these guards are, and that they haven't had the opportunity to be able to discuss any with it, anything with him in private. So, cause at that hearing, Judge, uh, Judge Gull said, look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm putting an order in and you're, it's, you're forbidden from using a camera at, at the prison in terms of Richard Allen. There is no more filming his attorney client meetings mm -hmm. at all. So then the question became to me, okay, well, that was in June. There's been months. Have they gone back and talked to Allen to ask him directly Okay, did they threaten you like that? Now, you would assume that had Alan said, yes, they've threatened to kill my family, because the one thing that they do say that he does say that are quotes mm -hmm. is, is my wife okay? Is my family alive? Those things. So it doesn't take a huge logical leap that there may have been a threat. And, and look, I've been going to prisons for a long time to talk to my clients. And if people have a misconception that guards in those places in high profile cases don't don't torture these guys just mentally, not necessarily even physically. It happens. Believe me, it does. Could Especially, it be of what he's accused of, though, and not that they're part of this bigger group? It, it, exactly. I mean, it, it could be such a thing where they're like, we think you did it. You, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? And, and like, we want you to, they could look at it like they don't think that they have great evidence either, but we know you did it. So you're going to leak. You know, I mean, who knows? Like, I'm completely right. speculating here. I don't want anybody to go on and say, right, Bob, right. Bob, 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 what I would like to see is maybe some former members, you know, or affected families that were directly affected by this so-called cult, that they're coming forward and they're corroborating some of this. Uh, because that's what happens in uh, in situations where cult leaders and, and cults are criminally prosecuted and cult leaders are put away. It's the leaks from the group, from people who are becoming disenchanted, who are doubting the leader, or people that for whatever reason left the group and then become informants or they become sources for people to learn the inner workings of the group, and then also affected families who were afraid for loved ones that were in the group because of their radical beliefs. These are the kind of people that could uh, testify in court and corroborate what the defense has laid out. Yeah, 100%. And they're, they're, the defense is going to have to hire a fine gentleman as cut from your, your cloth in terms of they're going to need an expert. Right. They're not going to be able to come in and make these claims without having somebody who's educated in cults and that's got a background and is going to be, uh, you know, put on as an expert witness and will qualify as an expert witness at trial. So they're going to have to have somebody to do it in terms of making the connection. I agree. You know, I mean, that's going to go to weight at trial. If, if they're going to make bald assertions without any kind of weight behind it, the jury's going to disregard it mm -hmm. is, you know, like 
just garbage. You know, I, I mean, love it. Bob, Bob's see. making a case now. Bob's making a case for Rick Allen Ross to be paid by the state. Hey, to come and, uh, no, no. Uh, let me let me say, buy me a beer, except I can't drink in three years. Let, <laughs> let me say this, and the prosecution would love to hear this, uh, because I think the defense may come up with experts. They'll come up with experts on satanic, more or less satanic ritual abuse cases. Or they'll talk about, oh, we understand when these groups do uh, ritual murders and so forth. And I would urge the prosecution to really dig in before they do void air on those witnesses, uh, because probably they have testified in satanic panic cases in the past. So what you really want is uh, fact witnesses that are going to testify about the facts that they know about this group. Not someone who says, well, you know, I'm an expert on ritual abuse, and I can tell you that ritual abuse is real, and I see things in this crime scene that somehow link to my theories on ritual abuse. That type of expert testimony, I think, could be discounted, and I hope that the prosecution will uh, blow them out of the water, frankly, and void mm -hmm. it. But what you want are fact witnesses who can really create that foundation that the defense needs to, to really create uh, the, well, I shouldn't say create, who can, substan which, who can substantiate the facts in such a way that this group is real, uh, that it really exists, that it isn't just a defense strategy. Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's, what's yeah it's, Joel, let me answer that real quick. It's, what's fascinating about this is that they're going to subpoena each of these named guys. Now, B.H. had a, an alibi. Like, he, he clocked into work and <laughs> he clocked out of work. We'd have to believe that he got somebody at work to clock him out in order for him to have been at the bridge. Does that, is that possible? I suppose. But, the, you know, it's like the more people you infuse into a conspiracy, the harder it is to keep, you know, loose lips sink ships. So, you know, the more people that are involved, the less likely it becomes but, you know, like I'm more interested in like the the other, the E, the E kid, you know, uh, there's the kid who confessed to not one, but both his sisters and who had the conversation with the cop. There's three other guys. Now, these guys are now I'm curious if they're going to come in and they're going to testify and they're or they're just going to come in and they're going to take the fifth If they take the fifth. What does that mean? What does that mean to the jury? I mean, that's obviously their absolute right to take the fifth and not say anything. But with that comes, okay, well, why aren't they talking? What are they hiding? I mean, that's in the minds of the jurors, you know? So that's all going to come to pass. I mean, like I, I fully anticipate these guys that they're named in there are going to get called to trial and they're going to have to answer this, this kid who, and it also says in the, the memorandum that he has the IQ of like a seventh grader the kid who told the sister that he was down there when the girls were killed. So, I mean, th these are all going to be issues that are going to come forth. I mean, like th th that's the thing, like what they put in the, in the, the memo is getting lost because they decided to go so far afield mm -hmm. with the Odinism stuff that, that, you know, the things that really kind of hit home for me that seem legitimate because they're, they're coming from the discovery tendered from the state. We can't forget that. This isn't this isn't them just making things up. They're reading through the police reports where the cops are like, okay, we we interviewed this guy. We interviewed this guy. And this is what they said. 
you know, and the other thing, Rick, I don't know if you're aware, like at the beginning of that memorandum, they actually, they talk about when the, when law enforcement originally got to the crime scene, they thought that there could be some kind of ritualistic aspect to the actual scene. So much so that they claim that they went to Purdue University to find an expert in rituals and cults. And they claim that they spoke to this guy. And then this guy says, no, I'm looking at it and I don't, I'm not seeing it. Kind of like where you're at with it. Like, I, I don't think it's like you're probably saying all the same things. Where, where's the proof that there's a cult in this area? Where do they organize? Give me something. Mm-hmm. So they come back. Problem is, so when that, when the defense finally gets it, like all this information, and there's this 85 page report, because there were three cops that continued to investigate that angle. They didn't think it was hot garbage. They're like, we're going to keep looking into it. Y'all do, do what you do. Mm-hmm. A unified command kept looking at what they were looking. They dismissed the, the Odinism angle. These three cops kept investigating. And it, it turns out that when the defense goes to try to find this Purdue professor, he, he doesn't, he's a, he's a, a mystery. He, he's vanished into thin air. No one at the, the school can say that there, I mean, how many professors can there be that are experts in cults and rituals at Purdue university? Over the past five years, there can't be hundreds, right? We're talking about a few people, you know, I mean, so the fact that this guy has vanished off the face of the earth is, is interesting. You know, I mean, there's just a lot at play there. And and I know on its face, I I was disgusted by the way that they decided to, to lay out why Richard Allen couldn't do this as an individual, because I I thought it was completely superfluous and ugly and it didn't need to be there. And it was, Mm -hmm. You know, it was just, it, it was hard to read and it was hard to look at. And they were really wringing the pathos out of it by, you know, continually say, you know, they say that she died slowly, slow death, slow death, just banging us over the head with these facts that we didn't necessarily need. But when you kind of glean in terms of what evidence that they finally did give us in terms of what the crime scene looked at, I mean, there's value to it in terms of us trying to figure out is there some legitimacy to it? And, and I know that everyone wants to, you know, there's a, there's a portion that just wanted to dismiss it offhand, but I would just suggest if, if you haven't read the document, forget about all the, the hoo-ha and just kind of get to the, the nuts and the bolts of it. Because there is stuff that, that is relevant. And, and just remember there is information in there that comes directly from the law enforcement investigation. This isn't, that's not how discovery works when they get it. Every, like, Cause they can't go in front of gull. And say, well, we just made it all up. You know, they're going to get disbarred. You know, I mean, that's well, not. I feel like the gag order was there for a reason. And this was a sly way around that. I wonder if she'll mention that in her decision on this. See, that's the thing. The gag order relates to them talking to the press, not pleadings. You know what I mean? Like, they're, they're two different issues. So, like, the gag order says, all right, you guys are shut down from talking about anything substantive with the case to the press. In terms of, like, they cannot handcuff either side from filing things and putting things. The question is, should it have been filed sealed? That's, you know what I'm saying? Like that's- Because if we didn't see any of that and they knew we wouldn't see any of that, would it have been so colorful and dramatic? I don't know. Exactly, exactly. I'm going to bring, with their permission, I'm going to bring this best guest panel on intact uh, in the next couple of weeks to revisit a lot of this and see what other news is out there. This last comment, then we'll get final comments um, from Karen D to, 
uh, Susan Hendricks. Is it safe to assume the witness had a reaction to the video shared with law enforcement? Uh, yes, that's him or no, that's nothing like who I saw. Uh, your take on this comment here, Susan, and then we will get some final thoughts. To assume the witness had a reaction to the, the witness being in the probable cause affidavit, the witnesses, the three yes, four young girls and then the older. Um, I would assume and I really don't know. I don't know much about the witnesses or what they saw. I, I do. I remember reading in part um, who passed allegedly Richard Allen at one point, And then there were three young girls. But I think that plays to both sketches. And I remember early on in this case, when I first covered it, Becky said to me, because there was a lot of discrepancy on the sketches, is maybe based on how young you are, you look at someone and think they're older. Or if you're older, you look at someone and think they're younger. So I don't know. That will be interesting. And I know that Bob could speak to that in terms of evidence and witnesses and, and what they remember seeing mm-hmm. and how that plays into a case. We'll Got to Gotta love Southern Charm. Just supported STS on Patreon because of the content like this. Very much appreciated, and I uh, appreciate the content given by Bob Mata II today, a partner with the Chicago Criminal Defense and Kane County Family Law Firm of Mata and Mata. And you heard his dad represented John Wayne Gacy. No easy feat, but obviously a family of uh, great legal minds. Uh, most importantly for this discussion. This Bob Mata is host of Defense Diaries, and we're going to get his wife, Allison, on as well. Uh, She was tending to more important business like weddings. Uh, Bob, (laughs) when is this trial going to start? Because they said January. And uh, right now, you think, uh, I mean, at this very early stage, if the trial happened today, would Richard Allen get acquitted, do you think? I, I don't even like it's it's hard for me to guess. You know, it's like we it's like we see and like we've all talked about. It's all about interpretation of the evidence. We've heard the state's interpretation of it. We've heard the defense's interpretation of it until it gets vetted at trial by both sides. We don't know anything. You know what I mean? All we know is two theories out there that neither of which have been vetted at trial. And and like it's the thing that I'm always preaching about on my Twitter account. I'm like. It's okay to form an opinion because we all do initially when we read a PCA or we hear about a case, but don't make it your final opinion until the thing gets litigated at trial. All the evidence has to be vetted, period, for both sides. That's the only way we can come to a conclusion. To do anything other than that is ridiculous because we're just going on emotion. We're not going on fact. And, you know, so it's like it's one of my big things that I'm always stumping about. But uh, there's no way it's going to go in January, man. No way. (laughs) No you way. think it's like a year away or a few yeah, months away? At least. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, Allison and I tried a case in Omaha, Nebraska, five year, two double homicides, five years apart, a massive case, much like this. Took us three years. Like I'd say the average is two to three years to get to trial. We are just beginning the motion work. This is just the beginning of the motion work. We don't even have a date set for an argument. Like, it, and we're, we're rolling into October. You know what I'm saying? There's going to be more motions. Like I I try to tell people all the time about the way that that a trial works. The real war is right now because what you see at trial is the culmination of all the pretrial motions that get filed where the defense is trying to keep things out of evidence, where the state is trying to keep things out of evidence, where the state's trying to get things into evidence and vice versa. Those battles all take place pre-trial, and those battles are what determine what the jury is ultimately going to hear. This is where the war is. 
that like right now in every case, it's always the pretrial motion phase and it takes forever. People just get upset. People, you know, lay people that don't understand how the system works. So like, oh, they continue to get, you know, it's like, like it's part of the process. It's a lengthy process. Discovery is still coming. Look, I guarantee you the investigation by law enforcement is in full, full effect right now. Still, they're still trying to gather evidence up until the day of trial. They're going to be getting things like McClellan saying, look, I need this, this and this. Get out there and find it for me. I need you to now once the, the defense comes out with this stuff, they're going to have to try to, to, to talk to all these individuals again and see what they're saying now. I mean, it's just a lengthy process. There's, I'd say, a, a 0.01% chance that this thing's going to trial in January of 2024. Mm. You heard it here first, everyone. Uh, Rick Ross, uh, he is a cult intervention specialist and frequently a court expert witness, maybe in this case, concerning groups called cults. He is the founder and executive director of the Cult Education Institute and the author of Cults Inside Out. I find it fascinating that this is his life's work. Anna Lissette says cults have a structure, strong leaders, required beliefs, control of followers' behavior, followed by this, Rick. Look at this. I think Rick is very logical, as do I. Uh, Rick, your final thoughts. What would sway you, I guess, into believing that this could be the work of uh, Odinists? You know, I'm open to the possibility that it could be linked to a cult. I'm just not convinced or or do I feel compelled by the motion, the uh, evidence that they claim that they're presenting now. Uh, hopefully, they're going to present something much more solid, much more concrete in the future uh, that would be convincing to, to someone like myself and to a jury. I, I think that's still a possibility. Again, uh, I think that the sources for that would be former cult members, affected families, maybe even friends of the guards, other guards that were at the prison who knew of these uh, individuals' involvement in the cult and their beliefs and that they had shared their beliefs with others. All of that could begin to form a foundation to make this all much more believable. I am a uh, news geek from Highland Park, New Jersey. So to have Susan Hendricks on, who's literally across the bridge from where I grew up, uh, is quite the honor. She's a veteran CNN and HLN journalist. Uh, she uh, anchored the network's live program, Weekend Express, from 2016 to December 2022. She did a lot of the uh, cut-in work for Anderson Cooper. You guys have all heard of him and heard me make fun of how long it takes him to get a question out. Don't tell him I said that, Susan. After 25 years, he needs to get his questions out faster. Uh, she's also the author of the book on this case, Down the Hill. If you haven't bought it, uh, Susan, is it available on Amazon and in bookstores? It really is. And it's the perspective really from the families. And um, I've had people read it and at CrimeCon, we're all there together. And that's the response I've gotten. And that's what I wanted to get out there. And having the support of the families means so much to me. It really is their perspective going through all of this, the armchair detectives, the media influx, right? So far, the investigation, then the arrest. And I remember going back to what Paul Holes told me, um, and he weighs in in a chapter here. It's very telling, saying, look, through his experience, and this was before anyone was arrested, the criminal justice system is not friendly 
to the families and the victims' families, saying exactly what Bob was saying, how long this could take. And no one was in custody at the time. So this was speculation, meaning after someone was arrested. And he said years, exactly what you said. And I'm thinking years, year after year. And apparently that is what happens. And I am thinking of Abby and Libby's family. I know we all are, their families, uh, through this process. Very well said. And uh, we started with the victims. We end with the victims. Uh, There they are, Libby German and Abby Williams. Uh, To say that they are gone too soon is an incredible understatement. And uh, as Bob said many times during this episode, uh, at the very end of the day, it's just about getting justice for these uh, young victims and their families. Um, Aspen Connor here saying, uh, thank you for showing grace and dignity to Libby and Abby and their families. Uh, Susan with the heart emoji. Uh, please buy Susan's book. Um, when we are at CrimeCon, by the way, we got a lot of stuff autographed. Josh Mankiewicz mugs. We got Phil Waters. Look at these pictures of Carm. In her, look at there. Carm center stage signing stuff. Uh, you see me with Nancy Grace, Josh Mankiewicz, uh, the great living legend, Dr. Ann Burgess, Phil, Scott, Kerry Rawson, Dr. Gary Bricado. And guess what? They've all signed stuff and we're going to do STS Nation giveaways. The CEO is trying to figure that out. And I'm going to shamelessly ask Susan Hendricks to sign her book for you guys. And we'll give that away as well. But go out and buy it because not everyone is going to win a copy it was uh, a whirlwind, him. wasn't it? Looking at those pictures. Yeah, it was nuts. Um, <laughs> huge honor. The uh, the organizer of CrimeCon said that Carm was one of the highlights of his weekend. So that was huge for us to hear. Uh, she is a character. A lot of people were uh, having a good time as Carmela told them all off. Um, she inadvertently, or I, let me put it this way. She inadvertently insulted Dick Harputlian. And uh, I said to Carm, <laughs> why, why would you ever do that? Yeah, and Carm said inadvertently. So uh, (laughs) we'll have to, he'll probably kill me for saying that. So, anyway, tomorrow night, real quick programming note we've got Joe Jackalone and Lisa Ribikoff coming on, along with Mike King on the Long Island serial killer. And then Thursday night, we're back to the Charlie Adelson trial that's upcoming, accused of murdering Dan Markell. Friday, it's back to Scott and Phil. Until then, Love you, America. Love you, Chicago. Love you, the great state of New Jersey. Love you, Arizona. The Republic of Ireland. Tel Aviv, Israel, and everywhere near and far in between. And, of course, Indiana. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score, and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. 
Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.